Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He is Paul Bettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Good to be with you for the next 60 minutes. We will get to your phone calls. We'll get to your tweets. Hashtag Giants chat 201-939-4513. As we start to look ahead to the Cowboys-Giants game on Sunday Night Football, we'll go over the practice report. We'll go over the injuries. Paul and I were in the locker room earlier today, and both coordinators, all three coordinators, I should say, addressed the media. So a lot to tackle over these next 60 minutes. And a reminder that Big Blue Kickoff Live is brought to you by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the course of the season. All right, Paul, let's start on the injury front. And Sterling Shepard spoke to the media. It seems as if his back issue is not going to be a lingering problem. He showed up late on the practice report the other day. Olivier Vernon also spoke to the media, limited at practice, along with Wayne Goldman. The two of them are pretty much on the side again. Yeah, so I would say that those two guys are much less likely to go. Sterling Shepard pretty much promised everybody that he's okay. He said that uh, yesterday his back kind of flared up a little bit, uh, but that he plans on practicing during the course of this week and does expect to play in the game on Sunday. In fact, one of the reporters actually joked with him and said, what happened? Did you lift the baby a little bit funny? Is that how you threw your back out? And he laughed and he said, no, nah. he goes, I don't think that was it. But uh, it was just some discomfort in the back. So I think that the fact that he was not at practice yesterday seemed to me it was more a precautionary thing than anything else. With respect to the Cowboys, Demarcus Lawrence returned to practice today. He was dealing with a groin injury. And then Randy Gregory, who suffered a concussion against the Carolina Panthers, still in concussion protocol. He did not practice for the second straight day. So if you read between the lines, Paul, it looks as if Dallas probably will have their number one pass rusher, Demarcus Lawrence. But it doesn't look like they're going to have the depth off the bench with Randy Gregory. Yeah, that's true. And quite honestly, when you look at that Dallas front, Lawrence is really the guy, much like Olivier Vernon is the guy for the Giants. Uh, you know, you could talk all you want about the schematics and about the team pressure and so forth and so on. But let's not kid ourselves. Uh, Lawrence is a premier pass rusher in this league, just like OV is for New York. And, and there is no replacing a guy like that. You could try to work around it as best as possible. I think the Giants pass rush was probably just about adequate last week. They'd like it to be better. It wasn't awful. It was sporadic, uh, but they certainly would like to get more pressure on Prescott. I think if you watch the Dallas-Carolina game, their pressure wasn't very good against Newton, but they actually played some pretty solid defense around that. And so, uh, you know, I think both of these teams going into Sunday night's game are more upset with what happened offensively yeah. than they are with their defenses. No, I think that's a great point. Dallas walking away with just eight points, a late touchdown, and a two-point conversion. And then, of course, the Giants settling for, you know, some shortcomings in the red zone. I, I think both teams are looking at themselves, hey, we were able to move the football. We just didn't have a lot of points to show for the yardage that we collected. Well, the Giants in particular had five drives of 45 yards or more in the game, which under normal circumstances isn't a bad day's work. But then you look at the four drop passes. Uh, you look at the, the muff punt they gave away at the end of the game. You look at the uh, two-point conversion that they did not block properly. And, you know, and that says nothing of a couple of misconnections on some passes, uh, a penalty that took away a huge 40-yard completion to Evan, Evan Ingram. Ingram. Yeah. I mean, the litany of errors, I don't need to relive them for you folks. It's already Thursday. But the litany of errors that the Giants made, here's what I would say. If you want to be optimistic, I would say this. I thought the play calling was very good. I thought the schematics and the philosophy of what the Giants tried to do on both sides of the ball was good. It was effective. Look, I picked the Giants to win 23-20. And if they score that touchdown on the final drive with under five minutes to go, you know, two drop passes and a non-call on Shepard getting hooked on fourth down, uh, that's a 22-20 game. Nothing surprised me about the way that game went. It was pretty much what I kind of thought was going to happen. The Giants showed me a lot of very good things in a generic sense. What they did not show me was execution. Their execution in a number of areas was too rough around the edges. Now, that's the good news, though, because you'd like to believe you can fix execution a little bit easier than you can fix play calling or philosophical issues because that, that involves a whole nother picture. 
If it's simply a matter of guys making sure that they run the right route, they time it correctly, they make sure they keep their hands on the ball and don't drop the ball, those things to me just seem a heck of a lot easier to fix. So for that reason, I I think the Giants have a lot of reasons to be optimistic about this game. Well, 0 for 2 in the red zone is a statistic that jumps out to me, Paul. By the way, Rosas 3 of 3 on field goals. He did a nice job. He came through, but you want to see... Two for two in the red zone yeah. versus three for three in terms of field goals. And the other thing which speaks to the lack of execution, which is what you brought up, Paul, and I'm bringing up my charts right now, third down efficiency, which was an issue last season on both sides in terms of stopping teams on third down and also coming through on third down offensively. So the Giants were four of 13, which was identical to what Jacksonville did. But let's take the four of 13 and break it down even further, Paul. Five downs for six yards or less out of the 13. Okay, you'll take that. The overwhelming majority of those 13 downs were third and longs. Eight downs Mm -hmm. for seven yards or more. But that's not what jumps out. Including, out of those eight downs, you had one which was a third and 16. You had another third and 16. You had a third and 20, and you had a third and 23. So you had eight downs which were seven yards or more, which is lengthy, And then half of them, Paul, were for 16 yards or more. You can't sustain offensive production like that if you're faced with those situations moving forward. And yet, despite all of the mistakes that the Giants made, whether they were physical, whether they were mental, uh, whether they put themselves in some bad spots, here they were with four minutes to go driving into Jacksonville territory, down by five points with an opportunity to win the game. You know, um, what does that say? That says a lot of good things for this team. They were able to overcome a lot of self-inflicted wounds to actually have a legitimate chance to win the game. You know, even Dallas had a legitimate chance, down 16-8. They're down by a score and a two-point conversion, and and they've got the ball late with an opportunity to still stay alive in that game as well. So I think in that regard, both teams have to at least have a little bit of oxygen in their lungs to say we went up against some some pretty solid competition. Certainly defensively, Carolina and Jacksonville are two of the better teams in the league. And and they were able to give themselves a chance. And isn't really that's that's what it's all about? That's all you can hope for. But I think you bring up a really good point in terms of the parallel between the Giants and the Cowboys coming off of their Week 1 performances because both of them are in similar circumstances. They had the opportunity to score late, tie or win the game. The Giants had an opportunity to take the lead. The Cowboys, of course, Dak Prescott fumbles after he was tripped up, so that was a lost opportunity for them. They needed a touchdown and a two-point conversion, but I think both of these defenses on paper are somewhat underrated. They both don't have a lot of household names, but both defenses... If you're Rod Marinelli, and we heard from James Betcher earlier today, Paul, I think you've got to be content with at least what your defense brought to the table despite the fact that you didn't walk away with a victory. Simply because you held Carolina to 16 if you're Dallas, and if you're the Giants, you held Jacksonville to 13 because one of the touchdowns was a pick six off of Eli Manning. So both of these defenses have to say to themselves, hey, we're going to give our offenses a chance to win games and be competitive if we continue to play at the level that we do. And I think James Betcher, you know, when he was asked by the media today, Paul, well, what did you think of your defensive performance? First thing he said was, we're not happy we didn't win the game, but he certainly was content with how aggressive the group was, and he said they were active. One of the lines that he said when he spoke to reporters, Paul, when the ball was thrown down the field, when the ball was in running position for the opposition— he saw eight, nine, even maybe the tenth guy in the vicinity. So he did like the aggressiveness overall of the unit. They gave up 13 points defensively. And even though Fournette had 41 yards rushing in the first half and then had to come out of the game, that's still a stellar Jaguars offensive line that has dominated opponents, you yep. know, for a lot of games over the last year and a half. And the Giants did a, a very solid job of keeping them under control. And look at the the, the halftime numbers and then say, what happened in the second half? Well, let's see. Jacksonville likes to get in front and then likes to control the rest of the game. Jacksonville had seven possessions in the second half. They punted all seven times, including in their four-minute offense, which is where they're supposed to milk the clock. Now, again, I know Fournette wasn't there, but everybody knew what was happening. They're going to milk the clock. They're going to impose their will on you with their big, strong offensive line. They got Norwell. They spent a ton of money on him. They're going to run the clock out, and the Giants aren't even going to touch the ball again. 
Well, the good news and the bad news was, yeah, the Giants did touch the ball again. The bad news was they muffed it away. But but they were in a position defensively to give Eli Manning one more shot. That says something. Absolutely. And then, to your point, Dallas's defense was in position to give Dak Prescott one more shot, and the Cowboys, like the Giants, just couldn't take advantage of that last opportunity. You brought up Blake Bortles and the Jacksonville offense and how they do like to play from the lead position, milk the clock, pound the football, put together lengthy drives. Dallas, Paul, is very similar. You've got the mobile quarterback at Dak Prescott. You've got the workhorse in Ezekiel Elliott, just like Leonard Fournette. They're going to look to do the same thing. They're going to want to pound the football. They're going to utilize that big offensive line, which Jacksonville also showcases. So, you know, if you ask me, well, from a defensive perspective, what's the key for the Giants this week? I don't think the philosophy and the mindset is that different, Paul, in terms of what James Metro and the Giants were preaching entering week one. You want to make sure you slow down Ezekiel Elliott and you want Dak Prescott to have to make plays through the air. That, to me, is the biggest priority because even if you look at the receiving core, the Jacksonville receiving core and the Dallas receiving core, and I'm just playing the paper game, which I'm not a fan of, but I understand the paper game is something that fans are invested in. There's not a lot of household names. There's not a lot of proven commodities out there. So it's easy to overlook the Dallas receiving core once again. That's why, to me, the emphasis is you take Ezekiel Elliott out of the picture, you're physical at the line of scrimmage, you got to make Dak Prescott win this game. And if Dak makes the plays down the field, Paul, then you know what? You tip your cap and you say, hey, Dak played a hell of a game. But that, to me, has to be priority number one. Without question. Put the game in Dak Prescott's hands. Uh, Look, he was inaccurate the other day. He had trouble against Carolina. We know that uh, Elliott had 15 carries, which is only about, I guess, 26% of the offense that the uh, Cowboys executed on Sunday. Two years ago when they were a playoff team and they won 13 games, Elliott ran the ball approximately 32% of their snaps. So you know what it's all about for them. Their, their, success, their su- success quotient is directly related to Elliott grinding the ball out. That's just the way it's going to be, especially with the lack of skill position players. Witten is gone. Bryant is gone. It's yeah. now Williams, Hurd, and Beasley. And those guys, honestly, they're not top-shelf skill position players in this league. They're just good, solid NFL players who are, you know, like many other good NFL players. They're not elite. They're not top-shelf. They're certainly not Shepard, Beckham, and Ingram. And they have a young guy, Michael Gallup, who they drafted this year, did get a lot of opportunities in the first game. It'll be interesting whether or not they look to get him more involved. I agree with you. You know, Beasley is an elusive wide receiver. He's a guy that he can turn a short pass into a 15 to 20 yard gain. So you've got to make sure that you're well disciplined with respect to your gap assignments or else somebody like that can help move the chains. But Dallas was put in a non-ideal situation against Carolina, Paul, because the Panthers took an early lead. So they immediately said, hey, if you guys want to set the tone in this contest, Dak's going to have to make plays down the field. You're not going to be able to milk the clock with Zeke. And that's exactly how you want to play the Cowboys. You want to play them where they're in a position where they have to play catch-up as opposed to Jacksonville was in a position, despite their struggles in the second half, Paul, they at least felt, hey, we've got some wiggle room to still run the football. Yeah, no question. I I will tell you this. You know, it's funny. There were 10 teams in the NFL this past weekend that did not score 20 points. The Giants and Cowboys were two of them. I guarantee you that in every one of those NFL cities, their fans are complaining about their offensive lines because that's where it all starts offensively, in the trenches. And I know there are a lot of complaints coming out of Dallas because their offensive line was atrocious this past weekend. Giants' offensive line performed poorly as well. Let's not kid ourselves, folks. But I'll give you, I'll give you just a couple of things here that I picked up from, from studying the tape and breaking down the Cowboys' film. I was up 2.30 in the morning doing this. this Which overnight. is not a surprise, yes. And, um, we, we saw Joe Looney, who was in for Travis Frederick right now, the ill center for the Cowboys, an all-pro. Uh, by my count, Looney allowed two sacks on his own. The new left guard, Connor Williams, who was a tackle drafted last year and has been converted to guard. This year. He's a rookie this year. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. That Connor yeah, Williams. Right. Yeah. He, he in his first NFL start, it looked to me, was responsible for three sacks. 
So that's five sacks between the left guard and the center. They allowed six for the game. It wasn't pretty. Um, They had a lot of problems. And in fact, I read an article coming out of Dallas this week where they talked about the fact that they had communication issues on the offensive line. Tyron Smith also had a bad game, including a bad penalty. Now, you know what? That that doesn't bode real well for them. So, you know, they're very disgusted with their offensive line, just like Giants fans seem to be very disgusted with their offensive line. Neither offensive line played well. Neither team scored 20 points. Neither team won their game. <laughs> that's just the way it is. And it's not a coincidence, by the way. It's not. That. Yeah. And that's, what I, that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. However... The one thing the Giants will have over Dallas when they go down there is that the Giants have Eli Manning, the Cowboys have Prescott. I'll take Eli any day of the week, and I'll take the Giants' skill positions any day of the week. Because if you want to tell me that that Elliott has a slight edge over Barkley because of experience, that's fine. But Barkley just proved he can be a game-breaker on any one carry as well as any other superstar back in this league. And again, Ingram, Shepard, and Beckham. You know, there's nothing the Cowboys can throw on the field that are as dangerous as those guys. And the other similarity I was going to throw out, Dallas and the Giants both struggled on third down. Cowboys 2 of 11 on third down. And why? They, like the Giants, faced a lot of third and longs because of the penalties, the miscues on the offensive line. They were going backwards more so than they were going forwards. But if there's one element of both defenses— And and by the way, before you go go any further, of the six sacks the Cowboys allowed— Three came on the blitz. The other three came out of a standard four-man front by Carolina. That's got to be concerning to the Cowboys, too, because you you couldn't deal with the regular front and you couldn't deal with the blitz. It wasn't like they were clean against one scheme or the other. Both schemes, blitz and regular front, gave them trouble. I, I just wanted to throw that in there. Now, Carolina deserves credit. Panthers have a very strong front seven. Just like Jacksonville experience. does. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, they were tested just like the Giants right out of the gates. And, you know, the other thing related to what you said, Paul, you mentioned Tyron Smith didn't necessarily have his best game. I would agree with your sentiments there. It just goes to show you when you put a rookie next to one of the best Pro Bowl left tackles in the NFL, communication issues can still happen because Connor Williams was getting his first taste of actually live bullets coming at him in a regular season game. It changes the dynamics. Uh, uh, look, Hernandez will tell you he struggled for the Giants in his exactly. first game. Yeah. Jalapio will tell you that he had some struggles in his first game as their new starting center. I mean, the, <laughs> folks, football 101, the trenches, the trenches, the trenches, the trenches. Yes. How many times have I told you this Capital in, T. in the last 10 years that we've been doing this program? And just one other thing I want to point out before we open up the phone lines. I think the linebacker position is going to be really key in this game. You know, Dallas with Sean Lee and Jalen Smith, who's two years removed from that knee injury. And then the Giants with respect to B.J. Goodson and Alec Ogletree on the interior. I'm not talking about the pass rushers. Who's going to do the best job once the runners get to the second layer, Paul? in making sure that they bring them down instantaneously and they also protect the edges. I think the linebackers may even be more important than how the defensive lines perform in this game. We want to remind you, Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the course of the season. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. Thanks so much for tuning in to Thursday's edition of BBKL. Let's open up the phone lines. 201-939-4513. Duke gets us going. He is in Queens. Duke, what's happening? Guys, what's up, man? Thank you for taking my call. Thanks right. for making it. Um, I missed you, Lance. Missed you. Um, first question, guys. Uh, Red Ellison, you know, we didn't utilize him that much in the first game, and I wanted I wanted to hear you guys' take on that, and should we use him more, especially for those third and inches, you know, third and two, third and one. Like, should we should we use him more, like, you know, for at least as, like, a blocker or something? Because Evan Ingram, he, he struggled heavily in that game blocking. So I want to hear you guys' take on that. And then I have another question and a comment. Well, the one thing I will say about Evan Ingram, there was one play. He was lined up with a defensive lineman, Duke, and he rocked that guy over and then ran on a crossing route and uh, was in position for Eli Manning to be his first target. So I think Evan Ingram actually did a pretty nice job when called upon to block or be physical at the line of scrimmage and then even continue his route. You know, Rhett Ellison 
we talked about this even last season. He played more than most people anticipated. I, I remember looking up his snap count. I think it was utilized just under 50% of the snaps last season. You know, can he get to that level this season? I think a lot of it depends on what Pat Shermer and the offense calls for. When Mike Shula, the offensive coordinator, Paul, spoke to the media today, he was pressed upon one question after another. Are you going to change things up? Are you going to use an extra tight end? Are you going to bring in Chad Wheeler on multiple plays because he was brought in as an F extra offensive lineman? And Mike Shula says it all depends on situation and it depends on the scheme. They're not necessarily going to say, hey, we're automatically going to go to that sixth or extra seventh blocker at this point. And I think that's the best way to explain okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, my second question is this. Um, you know, Odell, man, whew, he's, he just he doesn't miss. Like, he doesn't drop any balls. So, you know, should we target him more going forward? More. You know, got, I, I got 15 so targets, targets, Duke. <laughs> 15. How many targets do you want? And he caught 11. <laughs> I, mean, I know. No, nah, no. Got to throw the ball to somebody I else. Honestly, I mean. I wouldn't mind, like, 16, 17. All know? right. So we're talking about one more target. I mean, I, you really think that's going to make or break the Giants offense? I don't know about that. I, 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 would, I was actually going to say more, but I just didn't want to say an astronomical number. But So that's a no. That's a no in your opinion? Because I know we have so many targets, but I ask that mainly because if the drops continue, which who knows, like I, I think that would be the wise thing to do is just give this guy some more targets, you know, because he's, he's playing great. He's the highest paid receiver in the league. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I don't – it wouldn't matter. Like I, I think it would be a wise decision. Look at it this way. I would be surprised unless there were some unforeseen circumstances in a particular game this year if he goes more than two games all season where he has less than 10 targets on a Sunday. Right? Is that I, fair? That's fair. Okay. I, think, I agree. I mean, that, that major, maybe he'll have an eight or nine target game in a particular game for whatever the circumstances are, but I don't think that's going to be the norm. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very okay. high number there. And Duke, listen, we'll let you go on that note. Want to get to a few more callers. Okay. Appreciate you weighing in. I mean, the other thing you need to take into consideration, Paul, you know, he mentioned, well, if the drops continue, just because there's a drop here or there doesn't mean if you're Eli Manning, you don't throw to those guys anymore. I mean, granted, well, I know Odell essentially caught everything that went his way, but that doesn't mean that now you only look his way. No, no, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, guy drops a pass. Yeah, it makes you feel crummy about it. But if all of a sudden you eliminate him from the, from the scheme or from the playbook, well, then the other team is going to be saying, hey, guess what? He dropped the pass. Don't worry about him anymore. Well, just not yeah, guard him. You're playing right into the end of the defense. <laughs> it's the last thing that. you want to do. He got 15 targets, which to me is an enormous number. I mean, even if you look at the top wideouts across the board, and you know, in fairness, I think Odell Beckham was open a lot of times. So Eli went to him, which makes sense. But there is, to me, a distinct difference, Paul, in giving your wide receiver enough opportunities versus force-feeding your wide receiver. Right. To me, those are two different things. I think there were opportunities where he was open, and then Eli, I think, gave him opportunities to try to go up and make something happen. But when you start talking about giving a guy 18, 19, maybe even 20 targets, that's, I think, overdoing it, and that's getting into the territory of force-feeding, which I think could actually do worse for your offense and not necessarily help him out. Agreed. And I think you got to be cautious of that. Let's head back to the phone line. Scott is in New Mexico. Scott, what's happening? Good afternoon, guys. How are you doing? Doing Scott. How's Hi. things with you? Uh, I have two points I wanted to talk about. One is fixing problems, and the other one is attitude. And the first part, fixing problems, uh, when Tiki Barber was first here, and uh, he was having a case of the fumbleitis, Tom Coughlin pulled him aside and showed him a different way to carry the ball. And I think from that point on, he wasn't the same player, and he was obviously a pro mm -hmm. caliber. Gerald um, Ingram, the running backs coach, deserves a lot of credit for that, too. Right. But they recognize the problem. Uh, and I'm going to pick just two players. One's been beaten up a lot, I know, and one uh, I'm a little surprised about at this point. But Eric Flowers, for example, uh, since 2015, has given up 169 total pressures. That's the most of any tackle in the NFL. This is by you your know, count I, or by whose? I'm sorry? By, by whose count? Uh, that was on Wikipedia. 
Wikipedia. That's that's outstanding information. <laughs> Scott, I don't know if that's the first thing I'd yeah. go to in terms of resources. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but we'll we'll hear you out. Okay, so you read okay, that he's given up I the most pressure. Go my ahead. Point. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was also ranked uh, 54th best tackle in the league by Pro Football Focus. So that means there's eight tackles that are actually worse than him. But that's not my issue. My issue is uh, he's working with Hal Hunter now, and I know Hal from his days in San Diego, and he put some uh, very good lines together. What can the coaches do? Uh, and I'll pick another guy so I can do both at the same time. Evan Ingram drops a number of passes that he should catch. And I'm not citing him just for that, but just – in those two regards, where's the coach's responsibility and what can they actually physically do to change the dynamic? Because they're both key players on the offense. And if you, if you have this continually happening game after game, it's obviously not a good thing. So what, can, what do you see? Because you're closer to the subject matter than I am. What can the, what can the coaches do to actually f- fix the problem so they can move forward and, and we're not going through this histrionic almost every week? Well, I mean, I think it's a great question. With Evan Ingram, I'll take first, Paul, and then we could go towards Eric Flowers. I don't think with Evan Ingram it's necessarily that his fundamentals are short and that he has to, you know, change his routine. I think sometimes a lot of things with drops are just mental where, right. you know, sometimes you're thinking about what you're going to do with the football before you actually secure mm-hmm. it. Case in point, Scott, if you remember, Sterling Shepard had a drop where he was going towards the left flat, I believe, if you look, he looked up the field, Paul, he sure before did. he actually secured the football. Right. So, Under four so, minutes to go. That was a big it, one. It was a huge one. Huge one. So that's right. an example of, I don't think Sterling has to necessarily get a pep talk from the coaching staff. It's just, you've got to think to yourself, okay, I'm anxious in what I'm going to do next, but focus on the football, look towards the quarterback, make the catch, then turn, and then determine what you want to do. And that's where I think a lot of the drops come into play. There was another one, for example, with Evan Ingram, if memory serves me correct, where it looked like he caught it. Then I think to Sean Gibson, the safety of the Jaguars, came from behind, gave him a pretty significant mm-hmm. hit from the back, and he dropped it. I mean, once again, what are you going to tell Evan Ingram if you're a coach? Yes, you got to anticipate somebody's going to hit you from behind, but once again, I think those are more concentration issues than necessarily fundamental. Yeah, I, I would agree, and if Ingram is truly going to be one of the elite receiving threats amongst NFL tight ends, He's got to hold on to that There's ball. There's no doubt about it. Right. No doubt about it. With respect to Eric Flowers, I mean, that maybe you could say perhaps boils down to some X's and O's and technique stuff. But, you know, what I find just from talking to people who have covered the NFL, former players, with offensive linemen, a lot of it comes down to film study and seeing things so that you can anticipate if they come up again. And, you know, Paul, I didn't do the show with you on Tuesday. I brought this up when I did the show with Russ, and I'm curious your perspective. Do you remember the pick six play? What I explained, Eric Flowers spoke to the media on Monday. This was the one where Telvin Smith fakes that he's going to blitz, if you remember. I've I've studied the play about six times. I'm I'm just refreshing it for the audience's sake, too. You really want to do this? No, I do. Well, well, no. The reason I want to do it is because I think it's related to Scott's question in terms of, okay, well, pressure was given up there, but is it a matter of the technique was off or the player made the right decision and just Jacksonville had a good game plan? That's why I want to bring up this play. When Eric spoke to the media, Paul, on Monday, he explained that when he spoke to the coaching staff and what he was taught is... He is responsible to picking up the interior pressure that is shown by Telvin Smith. That is his first responsibility because it's a two-on-one type of scenario. So he fell for the fake because he obviously thought Telvin Smith was going to come in, and that obviously freed up Yannick Agakwe to get a step on him off the edge. That's what Flowers told the media. That's what I'm exactly relaying right Mm -hmm. now. See, what we don't know, because obviously Eric's going to tell us what, what he believes to be the case, or what, or for that matter, what he thinks we may want to hear. Uh, right. I have not talked to Hal Hunter since, since that game. Um, I don't know if Hal would tell me exactly what happened or not. I mean, obviously coaches do need to keep some things close to the vest. Right. Um, I suspect that was more of a mental block than it was a physical error on his part. I don't know what what Flowers thought he was going to see. I don't know what protection he thought he was supposed to execute. But he clearly didn't do either. And it just turned into a disastrous play for the Giants. Now, I can tell you this. And I I mean this wholeheartedly. I'm not going to sell anybody out. I'm not going to name names. 
Right. But I have talked to the coaching staff, and there was another play in the game that I know for a fact, okay, the offensive protection that was called out by Eli Manning and this and, and at the line of scrimmage was was apparently executed by half the guys. The other half of the guys did not either hear it correctly, didn't hear it at all, or thought they heard something else. And they did not execute the proper protection that the quarterback called out. Okay. As a result, the play totally blew up. And so I asked, I said, well, on this play, I mean, I think I know what happened, but I'm not sure why. And they said, well, we're telling you why. Those two guys somehow, some way, did not do the protection that, that Eli called out, but the other guys got it. So where do you, how do you put blame on that? Do you just tell them to take cotton out of their ears? Do you, do, yeah. you say, shake their heads and say, why didn't you understand this? Did they hear it wrong? I mean, there can be a lot of reasons for that, but that's a particular play that I know that blew up, and I found out exactly why, and that may have been the case on other plays too. Right. Well, my my question really relates to, uh, as far as this, uh, not repeating mistakes. And I know when Bill Parcells was coach, uh, and these are different times and different players, uh, he wouldn't tolerate a lot of this stuff. And what I'm getting at is you have a very good coaching staff. Uh, I really admire most of these guys. And if you have correctable problems, why, you, after you do it the first time, you need to correct it so it doesn't happen again. It's, it's a typical type of response. And what I see is a repetition of the same things. Even with Eli Manning overthrowing receivers, these are things that you need to correct right in the first game. Scott, Scott, you're you're not taking into account something very important that I gripe about it every single August. Think about this. The Giants' starting offensive line played together for five total quarters in the preseason. They replaced every single one of those five starters, including Flowers flopping over to the other side. I told you guys on this show and on the MSG show, in the third week they should play three quarters, and they should play another half in the fourth game. But what happened? They played a total of five quarters. I would maintain to you that NFL coaches are making a horrible mistake by playing their starters, especially their offensive linemen, so few snaps in the preseason. Because it was totally unrealistic, in my opinion, to expect that those five guys would perform at a high level in week one of the regular season after playing so few snaps together, especially considering that all five parts had been replaced during the offseason. Seriously, think about that for a minute, Scott. Okay? you're right. I think that's a very valid point. And then, furthermore, furthermore, Odell Beckham did not play a preseason game with Eli, and we could talk all we want, and Eli and Odell both said, we know each other so well. And we throw a lot of passes at practice. And we throw a lot of passes after practice. Yeah, right. but you know what? It wasn't in a game. So is, is it any wonder that there were a couple of passes to Odell that were just a tick off because maybe their rhythm and their polish wasn't exactly where it should be because they hadn't played a game together since last October? I mean, can, can we just be reasonable here? Well, you have to take that into consideration. And, Scott, we're going to let you go on that note. Appreciate okay. the phone call. Sounds good. Thanks. But the other thing that you also need to take into consideration, you know, when Scott says, well, if Eli Manning continues to overthrow Del Beckham, you know, when do you get to the point where something's got to change? But if you go back to this last game, Paul, and Eli even talked about it with the media, you know, every pressure is different. You're going to react to every pressure differently. So what you do when ja- the Jaguars are running at you is going to be completely different than maybe what you do if DeMarcus Lawrence is running after you because the angle of where the defensive lineman is coming from. it. You know, there was another play where he was going to Odell Beckham, and Odell Beckham got disrupted by the safety who made some contact, and the route was all of a sudden changed. Correct. On the fly. So the reason I'm saying is Eli and, over— And on that play, and there was another play that he went to Beckham that he overshot him where he was literally falling backwards because he was pressured of and course. had to get rid of the ball. So my, my point is, if you say, well, when are we going to get to the point where he stops overthrowing him, you can't really just give a bullet point statement no. like that because every no. pressure, every situation is different, and Eli's going to have to react on the fly— if the route is disrupted, that's going to impact the throw. If Eli's hit, that's going to impact the throw. So I don't think something like overthrowing a receiver is so simple that you teach a quarterback fundamentals 
to overcome all of that. By, by the way, should we tell people Eli hit his first 10 passes in the game? Okay, Which matched the career high, by the it, way, to start a game. It's hysterical yeah. to me that anybody would point a finger at him as one of the reasons they lost that game. Well, and I don't I didn't take it I didn't take the last caller as direct criticism. No, he's not he's no, no. not saying that, but weren't. there were some there were some who did. Not not callers, but no. there were I believe some writers and some others who really wanted to put some of the blame at his feet. But again, look <laughs> the the four drops, two of them which were inside the final four minutes in Jacksonville territory. I mean, are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. You want to look at the reasons the Giants lost that game on Sunday? He is Eli Manning is at the bottom of that list. It's not even. It's it's almost preposterous. Well, that's why I always say, if you're looking for one reason why a team lost the game, I, I think you should go analyze a different sport because football is the yeah, one where exactly you're not going to come up with a solid answer if you're just going to go after one player. There, there's so many different things you could point to why they fell short against the Jacksonville. Put it Jaguars. this way: Coach Shermer and Coach Shula gave Eli a very good grade out of that game. And that's all you need to know. Let's head back to the phone lines. Chris is in New Jersey. Chris, what's happening? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, Hi Chris. What's on your mind? Hey, so before I vent, I just want to, you know, say a couple things. I'm really happy with Shermer with the formations, the packages. I mean, everything. Outstanding it's a job. Fresh air to see Agreed. Some of these different changes. Agreed. Um, yeah. yeah and, and the other thing is the uh, 17, 17 returning players from last year. I mean, we got to go into the season understanding that this is going to be a two, maybe three, but hopefully just a two-year, you know, two-year, um, two-year, two uh, you know, making progress here for two years, two two years to uh, to get this team really on paper what Gettleman wants. Uh, definitely going to take some time. But with, with that being said, you know, the frustrating part, and, and going back to last year, and I know it's a whole new regime and we can't put this on Shermer, but it would be nice if the Giants could get out to a lead into the third quarter, hold the lead to the third quarter. It seems like for the longest time, it just takes a long time to generate any type of a spark to put some points. It seems like forever. We're always waiting to, for something to happen, and we can't get on the board first, and we're fighting and clawing, uh, you know, back. Well, you know, uh, Coach Shula said today that he thought they did get off to a, a difficult start in the game, both penalties. with the running game and and with the passing game because penalties and miscues at the beginning kind of put them in too many long situations, which is going to hurt anybody's club. I want to just address your first point, though, for a second. Yeah, it may take two years for Gettleman to totally remake the team the way he really wants it to be, but they are trying to retool on the fly, and they are trying to make the playoffs again in Eli's very short and limited window. They'd like to very much make the playoffs this year. John Mara has said as much. He expects the Giants to be in playoff contention. So don't just snuff it off and say, well, two years down the road. No, they they want to be able to, to do something now. The truth is, as Bill Polian, the Hall of Fame front ex- office executive, has said many times, and I subscribe to the philosophy, you don't really know what your team is very often in this league, especially one with so many changes, until a month into the season. So that's why I've been telling people the Giants need to go 2-2 two and two in the first four games and turn it into a 12-game season because maybe by October they will know what it is that they are and it will be as positive as Dave Gettleman wants it to be. And then at 500 with 12 games before you, maybe, maybe you can make that whole playoff push a reality. But, but you got to tread water through the first four games. That's why two and two in my mind is so critical. You know, it's also I agree with you, go, go ahead, Chris. I agree with your points and, and I know in this in this day and age in NFL you don't get the time to uh, you know to put a team you out don't. there to, to wait. But it, I I guess I'm trying to say is in being more detailed with the offensive line, I mean that seems like it's gonna be a two year issue. That's not gonna be a fix this year. I mean Chances are Flowers is going to – they didn't pick up the option. Flowers will be gone next year. Omahe still, who knows what's going to happen, you know, with that right guard position. And Jalapeo, Jalapeo is still, uh, you know, he's, he's basically a rookie at center as well. Only played a few games. Well, you have year, a lot of new faces right to your point, Chris. It's still going to be under a lot of scrutiny this yeah. year. And um, that could be, you know, some, some changes right there as well next year for those three spots. There are so many variables that can happen between now and April. But if you said to me right now, Right now, best guess, what are the Giants going to do with their first-round pick, no matter where it is in the in the first round? I would have to believe it's going to be an offensive lineman. I agree. 
But I don't think the Giants are necessarily, and Chris, appreciate the phone call in, in a different situation from an offensive line perspective because, I mean, you've got a lot of teams that turn over their offensive line. Indianapolis, for example, brought in two rookies this year. Minnesota with Pat Shermer last year brought in two veteran free agents and Riley Reef and Mike Remmers and drafted Pat Elfline. I don't think the Giants are on an island where they're the only team trying no. to incorporate new faces. That's the way this it, league is. Correct. It, it's a league full of parity. You hear me use that term a lot. You, the quicksand of mediocrity, which is another one. Yeah, I got whoa, it right on the nose. Pay. I know, I know. I owe you. It's ya. trademarked. I owe you. I owe you. trademarked. I, you will collect after the program, I Thank promise. you very much. I was just referring to another term that is thrown out very often here on BBKL. So the point is, I don't think the Giants are in uncharted territory it's a lot of the league going through transitional phases. They don't necessarily invest in offensive linemen and give everybody on the line four or five-year deals. Some guys are on one-year deals. Others are on four-year deals, and you're going to have to change. You just I think the one way to counter that, Paul, and this is a boilerplate statement, is you just hope you have some depth so that you can deal with some struggles, you can deal with some injuries. Those are the teams that keep their head above water. Case in point, the Philadelphia Eagles last season. And it may hurt me to say this for Giants fans, but you've got to give credit where credit is due. The reason why Philadelphia won the Super Bowl is when you lose Jason Peters, a Pro Bowl left tackle, and you're able to overcome that, and also you make changes on the interior and you have a swing guy like Stefan Wisniewski, that's how you survive that. So depth is important. It should not be dismissed. And that's something that I think is going to tell a lot about how far the Giants could go. The other thing I wanted to bring up before we get to another phone call the last caller said that the Giants get off to a lot of slow starts. And they did struggle because of penalties in this last game. But you know what's interesting as I'm bringing up some numbers I've collected, Paul? They've actually, over the last two seasons at least, and I could go further back, have also struggled coming out of the gates to begin the third quarter. Last season, yes. the Giants, their first possession in the third quarter, 13 punts out of 16 games. They punted 13 times. Mm -hmm. They had a field goal a missed field goal, and a touchdown to round out the three See, other possessions. I, I don't even want to address last year because too many I players are gone and the entire coaching staff is gone, or most of them are gone. To me, any trend you're going to talk about with the Giants has to start with week one of this year. And that's fair. I'm throwing out last year. No, I understand. I'm just saying that historically, I mean, just from my time covering the Giants, I feel as if no matter the coach, and I, I'm not saying there's been 100 million coaches, but it has been a fair struggle in the start of the third quarter. I'll go back 2016. Granted, I understand this turnover. You had eight punts, so half the possessions you punted. Well, you know, if you want to start playing the trend game, you could also say that over the course of Eli Manning's career, he's been very good in the two-minute offense, specifically at the end of a half or at the end of a game, but especially at the end of a half. But I don't, I don't sense any reason to do that because, again, it's a different coordinator, different head coach, different players on the team. I'm I'm not much into going for trends on that situation because so much turnover has occurred on this roster. You know, if there's a few tweaks, that's one thing. But so much has been turned over. I think going to trends is just poison. It just doesn't make sense. Well, let, let's look at it this way. Everyone wants to get off to a fast start. That's stating the obvious. And that's I, true. Well, what my point is, you know, when people call up and they're like, well, I'd like to see the team get off to a fast start. I don't think Pat Shermer's <laughs> going in the locker room and saying, guys, take the first two possessions off. We'll, well recover on the third. Coach Shula okay. just said outside earlier today, it's not like we want to score 14 points on the first two possessions. That's not even the goal. The goal is we'd like to at least effectively move the ball. Well, be consistent. And, and do something well with it. You don't necessarily have to get 14 points on your first two tries down the field. That doesn't necessarily set you up for a good day. It helps. It's sweet. Gives it's, you it's, it's a yeah. luxury. It's dessert for your meal. Yeah. But if you can have two 45-yard drives on your first two offensive possessions, that should set up a lot of stuff later on in the day. Yeah. You just don't want to see the three and outs or four plays and you're out. You want to be able to or at least get backwards. in position. Correct, which is the problem that the Giants faced in the opener against the Jaguars. Let's head back to the lines. Len is in Columbia, Maryland. Len, what's happening? Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing all right, Len. On, what do you got for us? Hey, uh, Lance, uh, first off, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm less frustrated today than I was on Tuesday. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that you were able to get a few <laughs> extra hours of sleep. Well, it took a little bit longer, but you, you know, finally have recuperated. You know yes. what, Land? If you got a good look at the Cowboys-Panthers tape, you'd feel even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. there you go. And um, let, me, let, me, let me just say a couple of things. Um, and this is in no way trying to defend the play of the offensive line the other day, but 
Yeah, you know, if you look back at a couple of things, uh, Jacksonville had 10 sacks opening game last, last year, year. Yep. against Houston. Mm-hmm. You want to see a bad offensive line? Look at Houston, <laughs> and they just and they just lost their starting offensive tackles, both of them. Yes. Um, but we'll talk so about this, that next this, week. <laughs> there's a lot of bad offensive play around the league. There sure um, is. The, another thing I want to say, if, if the backup was better than the starter, the, the backup would be starting. Yep. These, these, these coaches aren't stupid. They're playing their best players. Yeah. We are playing the best players that we have on the contract. Another thing, I think you've got to give a unit – and let's start with the offensive line. I, I think you got to give it four games before you start crushing them. I, I just think it takes that long. It, I think that's true of any unit, defensive line, defensive backfield, et cetera. I, I think you got to give it four games. I was, and, and, let me, and let me say, I, I was not happy with offensive line play, but you got you got to just give it a little bit of time anyway for this thing to, to possibly gel, and and then we start jumping all over. But we're playing our best players. Um, By the way, Len, I just want to throw one other thing at you, just because not every single play by every single offensive lineman was horrible. It was Eric Flowers who threw the first key block on Barkley's sixty-eight yard touchdown run. Yeah. There you go. I just I just there want to go. make sure that people did see yeah. that and didn't close their yeah. eyes when that play occurred. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I know, and, and you're not, and, and I know you're also saying, Paul, you're not saying Eric had a great game either. You're just saying <laughs> that there were some plays in there that he did make. It was a poor make. game yeah. by all five starters, and if anybody can't see that or wants to ignore that or close their ears to that, then they're being foolish. Uh, there's no question it was a poor game for all five of them. Yeah, um, Lance, you 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 uh, alluded to one of the blocks that Ingram. Through uh, watching um, uh, watching the coaches tape off of Game Pass, mm-hmm. um, I saw that play and that, it really was a wild play because yeah. he laid out Kalei Campbell. Oh, that was yes, he did. Did he ever? <laughs> was Campbell, he blocked. Yep. I mean, it really was a terrific block. But I, I also want to say that that's really, you know, it was it was good to see from Evan. But he he wasn't you know he wasn't tight as the tight end. He was back behind the line of scrimmage, and he was really in a pass pattern. He caught the ball. I thought it's a sure first down and maybe more. You're going you're gonna to be impressed with my surveying ability here. I got, I got um, Miles Jack at about 38 or 39-yard run in a straight line because he was about six or seven yards behind the line of scrimmage. I, I don't know how he caught Ingram. Unbelievable speed. I mean, well, Jack's Ingram's got a hell of a play. Made, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, here comes Miles Jack across the field, and I, it, I got as I looked at that tape from the end zone, it, it looked like he it was about thirty-eight or thirty-nine yard run in a direct line, um, but he caught Ingram, and um, you know he he made a great play too. But that was that was a, a really a good block at the beginning. No, you know, no 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 question about it. You know, if we if we play Ellison, and I, I like Ellison, and I think he's a good blocking tight end. He wasn't spectacular on, on Sunday. He's a good blocking tight end. But, you know, if you play Ellison, this is something I asked when we drafted Ingram. Who do you take off the field? You know, I mean, you got, you're going to take Ingram off the field, and you're not going to take Beckham off the field. You're going to take Shepard off. Somebody's well, got no, to come off if, the field. If you're going to go double tight end, both tight ends are on the field. Now the question becomes, does Shane Smith – wind up paying for those reps and as you know you know that's the most likely scenario yeah well ellison really didn't play that much on sunday I not mean, as we much as i Ingram thought he would and i don't think he was a you know meant to be a primary blocker in any way although he did make a good block on that on that you know on that campbell play i right, look on to on to, on to dallas winnable game where we're just as good as dallas we've gone to dallas in one game so there's no reason to be worried about going to dallas We've gone down there. Eli's gone down there and had super games. We're just as good as that team. Just like I said on Tuesday, Lance, we were just as good as the Jacksonville Jaguars in the fourth quarter. We were just as good as the Jaguars in the fourth quarter. And we're, we're just as good as Dallas, if not better. Well, divisional those games are always safeties, close games, Lance. So. Heath, 
Heath and uh, Heath and Kayvon Frazier. Kayvon Frazier. Well, Xavier Woods. Xavier Woods is hurt. Kayvon Frazier is going to start. Yeah, you got to remember something, Len. Yeah. This, this is Frazier's going to start. Yeah, it's well, a rivalry game. It's probably going to come down exactly. to the last couple of minutes again. They yeah. seem to more often than not. And as you probably also know, Len, the Cowboys have won seven of the last ten in the series. So yes, it's yes. been rather lopsided yes. for them in recent years. All right, let me let me try to finish my point about the safeties. They they can't cover our receivers. No, they, they cannot can't. cover our receivers. I agree with you. <laughs> Beckham, and I, I I know you had this discussion earlier with somebody. Throw him the ball twenty times. Well, that doesn't I mean, bother me in the least. I, that doesn't bother me in the least. I get he, that, Len. But there's listen, other talented the best, players on this he's team the too. Best offensive player in professional football. Give him the ball. Well, and don't when we get into crunch time at the end on the forty. Two and a half minutes to go in Jacksonville territory. Please, don't don't give the ball to Jonathan Stewart. God bless him, but please, please. Second down run by Jonathan Stewart. Please, get uh, get your best players on the field. Len, we'll let the coaches know. Yeah, thanks, and appreciate the phone call. I, I wouldn't okay. go. Take care, guys. You got Take it. Care. It reminds right. me of conversations that we had during the course of the preseason, where people were worried about, you know, Jonathan Stewart. Would he make the team, and would he take away carries from? Saquon Barkley. I don't think we got to go crazy over one carry where he spelled Saquon Barkley for a play. Uh, I don't think that's going to necessarily ruin the outcome of a game or perhaps oh ruin the ceiling of this offense. Let's head back to the lines. Flatbush Tim is in Charleston, South Carolina. Flatbush Tim, what's happening? Hey, how you guys doing? First time, long time. Usually I'm at work, so I have to listen to you later in the day. But I'm sitting here on my porch smoking a cigar waiting for Hurricane Florence, so I have the time to call. Be well, safe, yes, please. Yes, be safe. Very nice. Well, we appreciate the phone call. So what do you got for us, uh, Flatbush Tim? All right. Well, I got, I got two quick points and then uh, just a little analysis of why this game is so important from a little bit of a different perspective. First off, I feel like if Engram had caught two of those three passes that he dropped, I think we had a solid chance of winning that game. Second, I was a little surprised that we didn't see more blitzes from uh, Bletcher's offense. Um just, uh, you know, I mean, defense, I'm sorry. Uh, just just expecting to see a little bit more maybe with Vernon out that has something to do with it. But my yeah. larger point is that I, I look at every season this way. I'm always an optimist coming into the season, but particularly this season with all the new blood and the great coaching staff. I always look at it this way. If you're going to, make the, if you're going to win the NFCs or make, and may, or make the playoffs as a wild card, you need to go 4-2 and two in the NFCs. And in order to go 4-2 and two in the NFCs, you have to sweep one of the three teams. And the only way you can sweep one of the three teams is by winning your first game against one of the three teams. And thus, this game becomes really important because if we win this game against Dallas, then we get them at home. And, you know, we can, we can you know, you have to sweep one and split with the other two. Now, that being said, Paul, I agree with you 100% coming, and even before the loss against Jacksonville, which I thought if we won that game, it was really huge. But coming out of the first four games, if you're 2-2, two and two, you're good. But because the way I look at the season is you go 4-2 and two in the NFCs, and you can win you two parity games against those other conferences, the other divisions in right. the conference. Yeah. Then against the other two conferences, if you go five and three. Divisions, just, you mean. You know, you're just a little bit. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an 11-win team, which you're going to make the playoffs. Hopefully, you win your division, too. Now, that even gives you a little room for error to lose one of those games that you're hoping to win and be 10-6 and six and make the wild card. But, um, you know, I just feel like beat Dallas – I'm not so worried about 0-2 as much as if it, was, if it wasn't a conference game, I wouldn't be as worried about it. But beat Dallas, give us a chance to beat them the second time, uh, go 4-2 and two in the NFC East, and I think that positions us, as you said, 2-2 two and two after four games. If they can go into the second half of the season, 5-3, and three, I think they will have gelled and they have a chance of going 6-2 and two in those last eight games. I don't think there's a lot of hard ones there. And, and, and 11 wins, I think, wins the NFC East this year. What do you guys think? I'll listen to you here. Well, I think right, Tim, I don't think it's going to take 11 to win the division, first of all. But the other thing I would say is you always hope that the team is going to get better as the season goes on. I mean, that's what every coach strives for. He wants his team to peak during the final month of the season going into the playoff drive. Uh, any team that peaks now in September has got a big problem on their hands. <laughs> yeah, I think you want to do it later versus early. I, there's no doubt about that. I wouldn't necessarily dismiss the second half of the schedule, by the way, too. I'm not a fan of just looking at the paper 
and saying, well, you know, it's not nearly as challenging. Because here's the thing. There are some teams that we saw didn't look great in week one. Maybe they get a player back. They gel too. So, you know, it's very premature. For example, Chicago, you get in the second half of the season, they just got Khalil Mack. And the defense, by the way, didn't look too bad. And they were playing Aaron Rodgers. So just imagine once Vic Fangio has Khalil Mack, for the bulk of the season, what is the Bears' defense going to look like then? The Redskins, I thought, looked very impressive with Alex Smith under center against the Cardinals. You get them in the second half. Tampa Bay, you know, a brand-new defensive line with former Giant JPP. They obviously gave up a lot of points to the Saints, but maybe they need time to gel. It's way too early, I think, to start looking through the second half of the season and saying that it's going to be a cakewalk. That's why you break the season into quarters. Yep. And that's why you say, okay— Two and two through the first four, you're at sea level, you're at 500, fine. Take a deep breath and now move on to the next quarter. And that's really my philosophy on this whole thing. Well, that's why you hear coaches always refer to quarters, to your point. They don't necessarily look at the big picture. They're like, hey, if we can win every quarter of the season, we're going to end up with a winning record. That's the point. I agree with the last caller's point about four and two in the division is the easiest route to position yourself to either win the division or get a wild card. No disagreement there. You can't be under four and two. You have to do that. I mean, we could go through every NFC East division winner over the last Mm -hmm. 20 years. I guarantee you, three and three was a very rare occurrence. And I think actually the Giants may have been the rare occurrence where the one year they did it, they were three and three. Other than that, you really need four and two. As far as do you need 11 wins to win the division? You just said you don't think it's going to take 11 wins. I don't think so. I would probably agree with you. I think this is probably going to be a 10-win division winner. I think Mm -hmm. you're going to need 10, though, Paul. I don't think nine and seven. We've had some years where nine and seven does it. I think you're going to need 10. You're going to need at least 10. Which, of course, give or take a break, and all of a sudden 11 is 11. But I would tend to agree that that 10 would do it. And it wouldn't shock me. It would not shock me if nine does it. But I think 10 is probably your magic number. Well, it'll be 9 if they really beat each other up. And it's so early. We haven't barely seen any divisional games yet. So, you know, yeah, you can't can't really tell me that, oh, this division is definitely going to beat each other up. And, you know, if Philadelphia picks up where it left off, and Philadelphia, remember, built a lot of separation between themselves and the rest of the division. Philadelphia stole a win last week against Atlanta. That was ridiculous, by the way. You don't get brownie points of how you win this No, no. The best team in the division after week one was Washington. They were by far the most important. And I think a lot of people believe that they're not one of the best two teams in the division. But... After week one, they were the best. Well, which is why the paper test doesn't always lead to reality. Because maybe Washington will be the surprise team this year. Yes, sir. Let's head back to the phone lines. Matt is in Rhode Island. Matt, what's happening? Well, first off, I want to shout out to Paul looking snazzy in his shirt and tie there. (laughs) (laughs) We we were shaping the MSG first and 10 show today, so this was not for any other reason. Uh, did, didn't do it to impress the BBK crowd. We just just had to do it for the MSG folks. He dressed up just for you. (laughs) But thank you. Guys, I want to talk about something that's been bothering me for a few years now. Why these NFL teams, not just the Giants, continue to take the ball out of the end zone on kickoffs is mind-boggling to me. I think we can all agree Latimer is not a dynamic kick returner, correct? Well, I, I would say this, and, and I understand your point. You're right. He's not necessarily dynamic. But remember, with the changing kickoff rules this year, most NFL people believe that with the lack of wedge blocking, that there will be more open lanes on the field than there were before. And therefore, they believe that by the time this season is over, you will see more kick returns and bigger kick returns than you've seen in recent vintage. So I think you have to kind of put a line at the end of last season and look at this entire 2018 year as a new chapter in kickoff returns. Yeah, that, that, that's a, a fair point that I'll, that I'll consider. But, like, I see that first kickoff on Sunday. The, the Jacks go down, they get their field goal. We return the ball out of our end zone. We get stopped on the 12th. And now we're backed up against, a, you know, an imposing defense. I don't understand the logic of taking that ball out. It, I see it all across the NFL. The amount of – it's also punt returns, too, but the amount of penalties you see – I mean, the fumbling. Well, you're referring. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. Matt, you're referring to, because I brought it up, Lambeau kicked it 66 yards to the Giants' negative one, so right at the edge of the end zone, and Latimer took it out to the Giants' 14-yard line. He had a 15-yard return. That's what he ultimately got. Just down it. You're getting a quarter of the field guaranteed to you with no chance of a penalty, a fumble, 
or getting stops. Just take the 25 well, but, yards. But in fairness, listen, I get your point, and, and I agree with Paul, what he said, and Thomas McGahey also spoke to the media earlier today, said the same thing, that with the new kickoff rules, sometimes you're going to have the flexibility to maybe take a chance. But the Giants are not backed up in the situation that we're talking about where they get all the way back to their one. I mean, just think about what transpired. First, Flowers gets called for tripping, and then on top of that, you get an offensive holding. You got two penalties. The 25 to the 14 is a big difference. Yeah, but I I don't look at the 14. If, if If you play fundamentally sound football, even if you go three and out, I don't necessarily think that that's putting yourself in a precarious position. You know, Man, I, you're that, the ball from your own end. Yeah, I understand, but but, but I, I but you know what? With Riley Dixon and his strength and his punting ability, once again, I'm not overly concerned if I have confidence in my punter. Do you have the game I'm, book, Lance? I don't have the Co- game book on me, but I have okay. the play by play. Because here, I was so. just going to say to the caller, I think part of your frustration, and I believe if you look at the game book, the Giants only started a drive outside their own 25 yard line three times, I believe, on Sunday. I think so. I don't have the game book handy with me. Their average field position was not very good. And I think that partially adds to your frustration on that particular kickoff return because you're right. It did seem like the field was tilted all day. Dallas, by the way, I believe their average start was the 21-yard line, and Carolina was their own 38 in the game this past Sunday. The game of field position really has a lot to do with the flow of the game. Well, but if we're looking at kickoffs alone. It's been bothering me for a few years, and I I watch – you know, with the red zone now, you're able to watch a lot more football than you used to be able. And I sure. see league wide that these teams, they, they, it's the best case scenario usually is like you know they get to the thirty, great, you, you got five yards. That five yards is not as damaging as when you get stopped at your own fifteen, or there's a holding, and it's half the distance. <laughs> it really makes no sense anymore. Yeah, to take it out. The league is Look, trying to eliminate the kickoff. Yeah. Okay. And part yeah. of the way they're doing it is by the balls being kicked deep, and I see these teams taking you three, four yards out of the end zone, it just doesn't make any sense if, if, when you don't have a little David Wilson back there. Yeah, and, and, I, and to be perfectly frank with you, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but I think part of your frustration, you're a Giants fan, right? Oh, you better believe it. Okay, <laughs> I think part of your frustration, and I totally feel your pain on this, is that, you know, outside of Ron Dixon, Dominic Hickson, David Meggett, for a short time, David Wilson. Let's face it, in the last 40 years, the Giants have not had dynamic kickoff returners. I mean, you know, when we talk about the Rocky Thompsons of the world, that's very, very painful. And so, you know, I mean, there was a time when Alvin Garrett was actually considered good for the Giants. And let's face it, he wasn't that great at it. Um, You know, Leon Bright and those kinds of guys. So what I'm saying to you is I think part of your frustration being piled on here is that over the course of the last 40, 50 years, the Giants have probably had one of the more pedestrian, if not lower tier kickoff return units in the NFL. And if you if you had been a fan of a team that returned two or three every year, you might feel differently. Well, and keep in well, mind also the, the other times that the Jaguars kicked off was was a touchback here, Matt. So they only had one that they actually returned out of the end zone, Matt. I was I was going to say the no the the other times that the Jaguars kicked off it resulted in a touchback. The Latimer was the one time that they took it out of the end zone. So we're we're only looking at one. Look at what the Jaguars did. They even did it to themselves. First off, I don't even believe you should return punts. I think you should fair catch every single punt. But I, I won't even get into that today. Look at just do yourselves a favor. Try to keep a track on a league wide the amount of good kickoff returns versus the amount of times that you wind up getting backed up. I don't think it makes any sense anymore, but my boss is coming and I can't get fired. All, All right, right. Have a good day. The phone call. Bye. It's interesting because every time people say, you know, take the conservative route with respect to don't returning it. You know, at the same time, you know, these are also the same people that say we don't want Barkley or Beckham returning punts or kickoffs. So, I don't, you know, I don't, which way is it here? I don't want to criticize his feelings at all because I do I do think there is some of the frustration over the Giants not having an historically good kickoff return unit. I really believe that has kind of got it as gold a little bit. I, I know he's trying to paint a wide picture league-wide, but you know what? You know, if you had Devin Hester back there, You'd want him to return it. Of course. If you had Deion Sanders back there or Billy White Shoes Johnson back there, you'd want him to return it. Well, that's why I'm getting to my point. If you had Barkley or Beckham there, would you be bringing this up right now? 
No, I'm asking a reasonable question. I'd be jumping through what? the press box window to get them off the field. Well, see, <laughs> see that, but that's my point. See, I am one where I don't care about the risk of injury. Because if you have your greatest athletes, you put them on the field. Injuries can happen anytime. So if you're arguing that they should be conservative because you don't feel they have the threat back there, then my answer is, well, put Barkley or put Beckham back there. And then if your answer is still, well, then I don't want them returning it, then the, then what options are you giving yourselves? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically to the point where, and maybe it's because I've seen the Giants be so pedestrian at it for so many years, I'm basically to the point where take the ball to 25. And you I have no what? problem with uh, that but, philosophy. But, but, but if you really are in a desperate situation, in an emergency situation where you really do need to do something, okay, go ahead, try to return it. But more times than not, I'm probably just taking taking the 25. No, I would be completely fine if they took a knee on every single kickoff, but I also like to roll the dice a little. I don't think there's any problem with giving your athletes an opportunity. And, you know, as I said to the last caller, I think what frustrated him even more, Paul, is the tripping and the offensive holding penalty on top of taking it out on the end zone. If they don't get the tripping and the offensive holding, it I'm doesn't not become my, as magnified. Correct. And so that's what I think made it look even Anyways. worse. And with that, we got to go. That will wrap up today's edition <laughs> of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate everybody for tuning in. And a reminder that Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes throughout the season. Big Blue Kickoff Live back up and running tomorrow, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, as we continue to set the stage for the Giants and the Cowboys in Big D. Stay locked oh. to Giants.com for all the latest news and notes. And we should tell people yes. we did not get a chance to say it before. Janoris Jenkins excused for personal reasons from practice earlier today. So in case you see that he did not work, don't panic. Personal reasons, family issue, the Giants excused him. Hopefully everything is okay and he'll get it taken care of. Absolutely. We'll get into more on that front tomorrow's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday right here on Giants.com. Have a good one.